We're in Mark chapter 11, so please turn with me in your Bible to Mark 11. This morning we're going to look at the humility and authority of Jesus Christ. How many times do you see somebody that has a tremendous position of authority that's coupled with a lot of humility? That doesn't go together very often, does it? We know people that have a lot of power, a lot of position, but they don't necessarily have humility. What we find in our text this morning is that Christ comes in his triumphal entry riding upon a donkey, expressing humility. But then we'll also find him cleansing the temple and challenging the religious leaders with absolute authority. And I think that's what is the mystery about Jesus Christ, is we have God in human flesh, God dying upon the cross for us, but also we have absolute authority. And it's my prayer this morning that we would respond both to his humility, but also his authority. So let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. And as we go through this passage of of Scripture, we ask that we could approach it with a fresh heart, fresh eyes, fresh ears, and see you, Jesus, for who you are and respond to you. And we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us in truth, to open up our hearts and our minds, that you would instruct us, that you would teach us. So Jesus, have your way. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage, at Bethany, at Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. When they drew near to Jerusalem. We enter into the last week of the life of Christ. Palm Sunday, then leading to his crucifixion and his resurrection. This week is filled with passion. It's filled with determination. So many things are taking place as Christ is entering into Jerusalem. Been there before many times, but this time is different. This week is going to be the week of his death. As they come to Bethpage and Bethany, they now come to the Mount of Olives, and he sends his two disciples on an errand. In my Bible, I have the Mount of Olives underlined because it's such an important place in the life of Jesus. Oh, how I wish somehow all of us, all three services, could be at the Mount of Olives this morning to sit at the Mount of Olives for this message because it is a beautiful place. From the Mount of Olives, you're able to look down onto the Temple Mount. There's a a hill, a steep hill that goes down, the Garden of Gethsemane is at the bottom, then there's the Kidron Valley. All of it is close together, and then it goes up another hill to the, the Temple Mount. Jesus, from this place, from the Mount of Olives, after his resurrection, he ascended to be with the Father. Also, we know when he returns, it's promised in Scripture, that he's going to land on the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives has got to be the most valuable real estate on the planet. When he returns, the Mount of Olives is going to split open. Living water is going to flow out into Israel. So Christ, from this place, from the Mount of Olives, as he's looking into Jerusalem, into the Temple Mount, sends his two disciples on this errand. And he said to them, go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you've entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. 
And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. Put yourself in the shoes of these two disciples. It would be like going over to King Supers and finding a new car in the parking lot, taking it. When someone asks, what are you doing taking that car? Well, Jesus has need of it. Yeah, yeah Jesus does. How, how do you think that would go over? Well, we'd be visiting in, you in jail. You'd get a pastoral visit in jail, wouldn't you? And so these disciples are, are wondering, how, how's this going to go? They don't get a lot of information here. They're just simply asked to obey. Many times in our walk of faith with the Lord, he doesn't give us a lot of details. He just says, trust me, I want you to go ask for the colt. If they say, what are you doing? Just let them know that the Lord has need of it. That's all I'm going to tell you. Abram, when he was called by God to leave Ur of the Chaldees, God didn't tell him where he was going. Can you, can you imagine? He comes to Sarai, his wife, says, we're moving. Slowed up the U-Haul. Well, where are we going? Well, God will show us when we get there. We're just going to keep driving and he'll, he'll eventually show us exactly where he wants us to be. But the knowing is in the going. If, if we wait for all of the details, if we wait for all of the information, we're going to miss out on the venture of faith. We're going to miss out on, on what the Lord would have us to do. And, and he's testing our faith and testing our trust and growing our trust in him. Verse 4, So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. So just as Jesus said, they found this, this colt. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosing the colt? And when they spoke to them, just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. It happened just as Jesus had said. It was enough for them to hear that Jesus needed this colt. They must have knew who Jesus was. Said, okay, if Jesus needs this colt, if Jesus needs this this donkey, then then he can have it. In verse 7, so they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat. We know that this colt's never been ridden before, never been broken, but yet Christ is able to to sit on it and have the animal be at complete peace. Interesting, this donkey, this young donkey, recognizes Christ. How much more so for us that we would recognize Christ, that we would respond in the same way and allowing him to have control and authority over our lives. Let's pause and think of the significance of Christ being on a colt, being on a young donkey as he's coming into Jerusalem, what we call the triumphal entry. This is an incredible display of humility when we understand they're living in Roman occupation. And it's very difficult for us to keep that in mind that Israel is dominated by Rome at this time. Huge Roman cities in, in Israel. A Roman general, if he defeated 5,000 of the enemy, would then come back to Rome and parade through the streets of Rome upon what? Upon a stallion. No doubt the most powerful horse that he could find, the most impressive horse that he could find. Here you have God in human flesh, the absolute authority, but he chooses in his triumphal entry, in his parade, if you would, to come upon a donkey. It's prophesied in Zechariah 9, verse 9. I'll read it to you. Zechariah 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. 
Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey, fulfilling prophecy, coming upon a colt. Would you have a hard time approaching a Roman general upon a stallion? Be intimidating. Sure, he wouldn't have time for you. But do you find Jesus upon a colt, someone that you can approach? A carpenter? Jesus describes himself as being meek and lowly so that we can come to him and that we can approach him, the humility of Christ. We go on into verse 8. And many spread their clothes on the road and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. John's gospel tells us that it was palm trees. So you get the image in your mind of of Christ coming into Jerusalem and this donkey. And as he's riding, they're putting palm branches down and putting their clothes down for him to go upon and shouting, Hosanna. Interestingly, we know that palm branches don't grow, palm trees don't grow in Jerusalem. The altitude is too high, so you have to go down into the Jordan Valley. And that's where we find the palm trees in the area of Jericho. There was preparation from this multitude. They knew that Christ was coming. We see these huge masses of people that are following Christ. They knew he'd be coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. They were ready with their palm branches and ready to respond in worship. Verse 9, Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Psalms 118. Hosanna means save now. They're crying out, Jesus, save now. So much of Christ's earthly ministry was, it's not time for it to be revealed that I'm the Messiah. At this moment, it's now time. For the Jewish people, it's very clear He's fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9. He's fulfilling Daniel chapter 9. He is the Messiah that's prophesied in Psalms 118. And their understanding of Jesus being this Messiah means save now. Deliver us from the Romans. If we were living at this time under the oppression of the Romans, that would have probably been our cry as well. That would have seemed to be our greatest need. As we follow the narrative in the Gospels... Where does this crowd go? Where does this crowd that is so worshiping Christ, when it comes to the trial of Christ, we have a multitude that is crying out what? Crucify him, crucify him. Well, Christ was arrested and now on trial and they realize he's not going to overthrow the Romans. In their mind, he's going to be defeated by the Romans. A lot of them change their tune and they say, no longer am I worshiping, but I'm desiring the crucifixion of Christ. I want us to see the importance of the fact that they are singing and quoting out of Psalms 18. So would you turn with me to Psalms 118 in the Old Testament in the middle of your Bible, Psalms 118 verse 21, because it's really a beautiful and fascinating prophecy of Christ coming and being the Messiah. Psalms 118 verse verse 21. If you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles in the back. When you're on your way out today, you can pick one of those up. We'd love to give it to you and allow it to be our gift to you for you to study along with us. 
This is verse 21 of Psalms 118. It says, I will praise you for you answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, a reference to Christ. He's rejected and became the chief cornerstone of our salvation. This was the Lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes. Christ being crucified was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Verse 24, this is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. How many times have we thought of that verse in context of this 24-hour period? This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad of it. But is that what the verse is talking about? Is that the day that the verse is talking about? No, it's not. Now, is it wrong to use it in that context? No. God has made this 24-hour period. But the day that the Lord is speaking of here in Psalms 118 is the day of salvation. This day that Christ would be crucified, this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and we're rejoicing in salvation. Now, here's what they quoted in verse 25. Save now, or Hosanna, I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. So three prophecies fulfilled as Christ comes into Jerusalem. Zechariah 9, Psalms 118, and also Daniel chapter 9. Let's go back to Mark chapter 11. In verse 11, And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. He comes into the temple mount, to the temple. It's late in the hour, late in the evening, and he just investigates. He looks at what's taking place in the temple. But then once again, he leaves Bethany, going through, or excuse me, leaves Jerusalem, goes through the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives to Bethany. It's unsafe for him to stay in Jerusalem. This last week of his life, he goes back and forth every day. What's there for him in Bethany? Some good friends. We know that this is the home of Mary and Martha and and Lazarus. Verse 12, now the next day, so it's the next morning, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. Christ and his humanity got hungry. If you haven't had breakfast yet and you've only had coffee and you're extremely hungry right now, the Lord knows exactly how you feel. Do you guys want to know what I had for breakfast? No, I'm just joking. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So this seems strange to us because the scripture tells us it's not the season for figs. So why is Jesus upset at the tree that there's no figs? The problem is because of the leaves. It was strange for the fig tree to have leaves and not have figs. If there were leaves, there were normally figs. What Christ here is illustrating is the problem with false advertisement. Is appearing to have fruit, but in actuality having none. And he is referring here to the nation of Israel, specifically the temple. The temple that should be a place of fruit, a relationship with God, a love for others, as we'll find, had become a den of thieves. Became a place where they were only concerned with pretense. We know that Israel, figuratively, 
is represented by a fig tree. In Hosea chapter 9, it says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. They're likening Israel towards the fig tree. So it's a warning to the religious leaders, it's a warning to the nation of Israel, and it's a warning to us to not just get caught up with the leaves, but to get caught up with a real relationship with the Lord that results in fruit. We live in a culture of false advertisement, don't we? I'm kind of a fan of Craigslist. Like, I'm not looking for a vehicle, but it's kind of a hobby just to get on Craigslist and see what's out there. I mean, I may be missing something, some old car that has very few miles, always looking for that car that grandma drove and only put 60,000 miles on it, even though I'm not going to go buy it. If you've ever bought a vehicle on Craigslist, you've had this experience where it looks great in the pictures. You talk to the person on the phone, it's exactly what you're looking for. Maybe you even drive up to Denver. You get there and there's one side of the vehicle that they did not put in the pictures, that they didn't tell you about, and it's false advertisement. Yes, I've been there. I've done that when we were looking for, for a minivan. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram really is false advertisement. Let's be honest. What do we all put on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram? Oh, the best life ever. I'm having the best life ever. Like, look at me and my spouse right now. Like, woo. You know, and it's like, Oh, my husband, he just got me flowers. Ah, you be jealous of my man, you know. (laughs) Yes, and that moment is true, but we're not putting real life there, you know. We're not putting like, today was pretty much terrible, you know. This this is the reality of my, my life, you know. And who would, who would want to probably see that anyway? But we can get jealous of people's lives and we've got to realize they're putting the, the, best, the best forward. And this, this culture of dating websites, I wonder how much false advertisement is, is put into those dating websites. I wonder how many people have had an experience of like, you know, you didn't even put the right photo of yourself. There wasn't even you on the photo. And I, I showed up on this blind date with you and you completely deceived me, Right? And the warning for us with this fig tree is we learn how to do religion. We learn how to do church. We know how to look leafy, you know. We got our Bible and we're at church at Sunday morning. There's nothing wrong with those things as long as it's an avenue into a relationship with the Lord. We're understanding who Jesus is and walking with him and realizing that we're poor in spirit before Christ and saying, God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you do a work in my life? Fruit can only come through the Holy Spirit. I think a lot of us are saying, Eric, I hear what you're saying. And yeah, I long for genuine fruit in my life, but I don't know how to get there. I've been trying and failing, trying and failing. It comes through relationship with Christ, being with him, walking with him, abiding in him, and asking for the Holy Spirit to fill us. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That, that's the work of the Spirit in my life. I can't generate that. That comes through me depending and yielding and asking for the Spirit to do a work in my life. Verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out who brought, bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables 
of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares, which is merchandise, through the temple. We see his humility riding upon the colt, but now we see his authority. He's able to go right into the temple, right into these religious leaders, turn over the tables, stop people from bringing merchandise in and through the temple. We'll read in just a moment that the temple had become a den of thieves. Why is Jesus upset here? Why is he, he angry here? Because the place where people were supposed to be able to meet with God unhindered, where the nations could be prayed for, the nations could be impacted, became a place where people were robbed from. The leaders were fleecing God's people instead of feeding God's people. It says here that they sold doves. Doves was the poor man's offering, the poor man's offering from the Old Testament. And here they were making a profit off of these doves, saying, look, you need to buy a temple-approved dove for this really expensive price. We know that there was temple currency that they had. So to be able to buy these things, you had to get temple money. And then your exchange rate, you were getting ripped off in that. We also know from history that they instituted a tax that you had to pay once a year. Every male, when they came to the temple, once a year would have to pay this tax. Could you imagine? It's like, hey, it's the first Sunday of 2017. Everybody needs to pay their tax in order to come into the sanctuary to worship the Lord. It's going to cost you. So this stirs the heart of Christ. And once again, we're warned is we need to be very careful that we're not ripping off God's people, especially leaders, spiritual leaders, Are we feeding God's people? Are we loving God's people? Are we caring for them? Are we fleecing them? Because that invokes God's anger. In verse 17, he taught them saying, Is it not written, quoting from Jeremiah 7, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. You have made it a den of thieves. The temple had been a place that God wanted to use to impact the nations. Yes, for the nation of Israel, but them reaching out to the nations of the world. This is part of the fruit that we see lacking here with the the fig tree. And in our lives to go, I want a relationship with Christ that cares for others. A relationship with Christ that cares for the nations. And the scribes and the priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all of the people were astonished at his teaching. So here's where religion without relationships dangerous. These guys are preparing for the Passover and they're plotting the murder of Jesus Christ. That shows a lack of relationship with God. Why don't they move forward right at this moment? Because the people are there and the people are astonished at Christ's teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. In and out of Jerusalem, now they're coming back in to Jerusalem. The next morning, after the temple has been cleansed, this fig tree is all dried up, and the roots are, are, are dried up. Interestingly enough, in the Gospels, this is the only destructive miracle of Christ. Every other miracle is him giving life, bringing life, but here he destroys this, this fig tree. And Peter remembered, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. Peter is astonished. So Jesus answered and said, have faith in God. 
For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain or to to this difficulty, be removed and be cast into the sea, and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that these things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them and you will have them. Peter's blown away that this fig tree is now dried up and the roots are are withered. This is a lesson for Peter and us in prayer. Jesus is saying, Peter, you're going to see things like this and even greater if you approach the Father in faith. If you approach him through prayer, believing that he hears you, not doubting your prayer, doubting that he's going to give you what you ask. It's a lesson for Peter in prayer. Now let's look at the abuse of this and let's also look at the reality of this. What is the abuse of this section of scripture? It's, well, whatever I ask of God, as long as I have faith, he's going to give it to me. Something like this. In Jesus' name, give to me a million dollars. Do you think that that is what this passage is teaching? And that lines up with what we're being taught. The key is we look through Christ teaching us in prayer. He taught us to pray, not my will, but your will be done. So prayer is not to get my will done in heaven, but to get God's will done in my life. Also, we're taught to pray in the name of Jesus. Okay? What does that mean? Is that just a tagline that we put on? In Jesus' name. No. It's praying according to his character and his nature. We, we sang this morning what a beautiful name it is. Because it's who, who he is. Maybe you have a grandparent that walked with the Lord. Or a mentor who's, who's walked with the Lord. And you think of their character. And when you say their name, you're expressing the embodiment of, of who, who they are. And there's certain things that are inside and outside of their character. So if I were to try to say, in Jesus' name, give me a million bucks, that doesn't line up with his character and nature. I don't have confidence that he's going to answer that. In fact, I know he's going to tell me no. Why? Because the book of James tells us that if we ask upon our selfish desires, we ask amiss. So, so God's not going to honor that. He's a loving father. Parents, do you give in to every selfish desire of your kids? I hope not, right? We don't. So what does this mean? That's the abuse. But what does it mean accurately and biblically is things that do line up with God's word, his will, his character, his nature. Something like this. God, I know that my neighbor doesn't know you. They don't have a relationship with you. And I'm asking in Jesus' name that you would reveal yourself to them and be gracious to give me an opportunity to share Christ with them. Do you think that that's something that God's going to answer? Is that something that we should believe in faith that he's going to answer? Yes, because it lines up with his character, his will, his word. God doesn't want any to perish. If we go before the Lord, like we talked about, and say, God, I just, I really lack love. I I lack love for you. I lack love for others. Would you please work in me, in Jesus' name, to make me more loving for your glory? Jesus is probably going, it's about time. It is about time. Yes and amen. And he'll begin to answer that and work in our lives. But there is a tremendous challenge in this passage. Do we believe that? Do we believe that about prayer? That he's hearing our prayer. And if it's according to his name, according to his character and nature, that he's going to hear and respond. And it's important for Peter to learn this and for us to learn it as well. 
What's going to hinder prayer? A lack of faith and also unforgiveness in verse 25 and 26. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Pretty clear. Connected to prayer. As you're praying, you stand praying, you're worshiping, and all of a sudden you realize, man, I've got this against this person. It's amazing how prayer and worship and time in the word, it begins to expose our hearts. I can't tell you how many times that in those moments, the Lord reveals, hey, Eric, you're not right towards this person. I didn't even realize I'm holding on to bitterness. I'm holding on to to unforgiveness. What are we to do in that moment? Jesus tells us it's very clear. You forgive them. You choose to forgive them. Why? So that the Father will forgive you your trespasses. Jesus is very clear on this, that it's unjust for us to freely receive his forgiveness without being willing to extend it to others. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We receive it by faith, and we enjoy the forgiveness of God, and all of our sin is washed away. And then for us to say, well, I can't forgive this person because they hurt me. I can't forgive this person because they've wronged me. And bitterness, the root of bitterness comes inside of us and defiles many. I bet right now that there's probably a name that the Holy Spirit is bringing to your mind where you're saying, no, 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 no. I'm not forgiving them. You don't realize what they have done to me. The proof of a forgiven heart that I understand God's forgiveness and am enjoying it is a willingness to be able to share it with someone else. Because God has forgiven me way more than I'm ever going to have to forgive anybody else. And he's God and he has the right to hold it against me. I'm a sinner. What right do I have to hold it against somebody else? Choose to forgive. Right now, I'd encourage you, choose to forgive. Make that choice. All right, I read your word. It's going to hinder my prayer. I choose to forgive them in Jesus' name because, God, you've forgiven me. If I can be transparent with you this morning and real and honest, I have never felt like forgiving when someone has seriously hurt me. And maybe you do. Maybe you get the warm fuzzies about forgiveness and you're just like, oh, I just, I just feel all this emotion and I can just let this go and I can, I can forgive them. I'm happy for you. But I'm glad it works like that for you. For me, it's a wrestling match where I'm going, no, I don't want to forgive them. They've hurt me too bad. And the Holy Spirit presses in and begins to work in my life. It's always a choice of the will where I choose it, not based upon my emotions. If you wait for the emotions of forgiveness, you will never forgive. It's a choice of obedience to God's word. And I would encourage you to say it out loud. I forgive, use their name, in Jesus' name, because God has forgiven me. I'm extending the grace that I have received. Then to go a little step further and pray for them. You're like, oh no, I can't even begin to pray for them. Again, being honest, when I start praying for someone who has hurt me, it doesn't feel very genuine. And I don't think we can pray the Psalms where David says, bust and break out their teeth. No. That's not the idea of praying for them. All right, I'm going to pray for them. God, get them. Get them right in the mouth. 
Give them a root canal that they'll never forget. Pray blessing upon them. Jesus tells us, love our enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you. God, would you reveal yourself to them? If they're married, God, would you bless their their marriage? Would you bless their kids? Would you provide for them? And then it's a continual choice because if we choose to forgive right now, we're going to have to forgive again this afternoon and tomorrow morning. Forgive, pray, forgive, pray, forgive, pray. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Do you want mercy from the Lord? Do you want grace from the Lord? Do you want forgiveness from the Lord and others? Then extend it. Verse 27, they came again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders came to him. They've got their posse of opposition. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus messed up their world, turned over their tables, affected their pocketbook, humiliated them. And they respond by saying, what authority do you have to do this? Which is often our response to Jesus when he gets in our personal space. When he starts to turn over the tables in our lives, mess with our priorities, we can get angry, we can get frustrated, we can go to the Lord and say, you know, what gives you the right and what gives you the authority to be able to to do this? I think for a lot of times, unbelievers, as they look at the personhood of God, they approach him this way. They look at God and they say, God, who are you that you would allow hurricanes? Who are you that you would allow earthquakes? Who are you that you would allow Ebola? And the list goes on and on. But when we're in that place, as a believer or an unbeliever, whether we realize it or not, is we're putting ourselves in the position of authority. We're saying, I've got this figured out. And I know how to do this better than you. And who are you to do this? I'm failing to see who I am and to see who Jesus is. I would suggest to you that we can trust his authority. That we can trust his ways. That we can trust his working. Because he laid down his life for us. The father gave his son for us. So even though we don't understand it and it's confusing at times to be able to say, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. The way that Jesus answers this is masterful. Then Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority you do these things. So let's play the question game. I'm going to answer a question with the question. If you can answer my question, then I'll answer your question. The baptism of John, John the Baptist, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven... He will say, why then did you not believe? John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. So if they say his baptism was from heaven, then why didn't you receive Christ? But if you say from men, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So so they're at a conundrum. So they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He just spanked him right there. He just verbally showed him up. He's like, bam, what's up? You know, here it is. Complete self-control. His authority is being challenged. And he shows these guys, really, you don't have any authority. You don't have authority to be challenging me. So as we close this morning, how do we respond to this section of Scripture? 
First, let's respond to Christ's humility. God in human flesh, riding upon a colt, nailed to a cross, risen from the dead, where he welcomes us to come to him. Come to me, Jesus says. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest, for I am meek and lowly. I'm humble. I'm approachable. Let's take advantage of that and let's respond to that. And as we approach Christ, hopefully we begin to walk in humility. Maybe it is this morning that we've been on our high horse. We've been on our stallion. We march in in our parade and we're look at our accomplishments. Look at what I've done. Look at, look at who, who I am. You know what? God would appreciate it if we got off our high horse. And your spouse would appreciate it. My spouse would appreciate it. Our friends would appreciate it. Our coworkers would appreciate it. God would be glorified this morning if we would walk in humility. Maybe you've thought authority is really the absence of humility. Well, Jesus is authority and he walked in humility. So we approach him and we also say, Lord, I want to walk in humility. But then to respond to his authority, why do the scribes and the Pharisees and the temple, why are they bearing no fruit? Because they haven't accepted the authority of Jesus Christ. Who he is, what he's doing. There's no relationship with Christ, so it's obvious that there would be no fruit. And I think fruit in our lives is linked to us saying yes to Christ's authority. Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says, you are not your own. You're bought with a price. God has double ownership of our lives. How so? Well, first he created us, so that gives us ownership, gives him ownership. Would you agree? And then secondarily, he died for our sins. He paid the price for our sins. He bought us. We accepted his authority when we received his his free gift. And for us to really understand today in our relationship with the Lord, it's not up to me. I don't get to choose. I don't get to question. I don't get to challenge. I get to accept. I get to surrender. I get to submit to his authority. I think the surrendering and the submitting to the Lord's authority happens when we understand who he is. Then it doesn't become difficult. We go, yeah, I'm good at making a mess of me and a mess of others. I don't want to be in control of my life. Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. A daily decision, a moment-to-moment decision. Waking up, Jesus, my life belongs to you. What would you have for me today? Paul asked this of the Lord when he got saved. He says, Lord, what would you have me to do? And he meant it. He never stopped asking that question. That's the way he lived his relationship with God. Lord, what would you have me to do? I'm accepting your authority in my life. So we're blown away by the humility of Christ. We're blown away by the authority of Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you you came. You came into Jerusalem riding upon this colt to die for our sins. You could have easily overthrown the Romans, but you wanted to do something far greater, and that save us and bring us into relationship with you. And we choose to approach you as our faithful and merciful high priest. Take a moment to approach Christ. Come to him. 
in worship. Come to him in what's burdening your heart today. And now, Jesus, we reflect on your authority. You cleansed the temple. You spoke all things into existence. You conquered sin and death. You are the lion. Say yes to his authority afresh this morning. Surrender yourself to him. Submit yourself to him. Jesus, we give you our eyes. We give you our ears. Our tongue. Our heart. Our hands. Our feet. Internally, externally, Jesus, we're yours. We surrender to you. Please fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. We want to bear fruit for you. Give us a heart for the nations. Give us a heart for our neighbor, a heart for our city. We don't want to just seek you in pretense. We really want to walk with you. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name.